Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Sometimes it's necessary for us to go beyond our limits. So this is Dr. Carol Francis welcoming all of you to a very challenging interview, challenging in that it challenges you to stand up for your rights, stand up when things are unjust, stand up when you know you have a cause that you have to persevere through as you dig your way into and out of a circumstance. We are about to meet Lori St. John. Oh, my goodness. And meeting her through her book, the Corruption of Justice. Oh, my goodness, I think I just corrupted your title. The Corruption of Innocence. <laughs> the Corruption <laughs> of Justice is what I was thinking when I was reading your book. She concludes saying millions of supporters wanted justice. To think the government demonstrated such signs of arrogance and power in ignoring the pleas of well-intentioned dignitaries causes me concern, and it should you too. So, listeners, prepare yourself as you will be aware that justice is in your hands and not the hands of your lawyer and not necessarily the hands of the judge. But we have oh, quite a journey to take ahead of us as we meet Lori St. John, the author of Corruption of Innocence. Well, to talk to us, Lori, about where you want to take us as we get to know who you are. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me, Carol. It's, it's wonderful to be back, and, and I'm, I'm glad to be sharing my story and also the state of affairs um, for, for wrongful convictions, you know, not only in our country but globally. I think it will be an important aspect of the hour that we share together to be able to share not just my story but how it fits in, in with the overall problem of wrong con- wrongful convictions in our country. You know, you said in your book at the very beginning, you know, some people of you are going to think that this is just a story, that it's fictionalized, but it is not. It is real. And others will think, well, this happens to other people, but not me. But the truth is, it's happened to me, close to home, where I had to fight the justice system, and it was the most peculiar experience in my life. I was in shock that the justice system was so unjust. So listeners, it's bound to happen to you or someone you love, so listen closely because the journey ahead of you or that perhaps you're in the midst of is something that Laurie St. John knows well. How did you get involved in this circumstance, and what exactly is the circumstance that's mentioned in The Corruption of Innocence, Laurie? Yeah, I think my book, um, The Corruption of Innocence, A Journey for Justice, um, is about my venture out into the world um, as a former owner of a CPA practice to do something meaningful in the world. And I think we all can identify with, you know, wanting to find purpose, something meaningful, leave a legacy, and do something powerful, you know, before you leave this world. And The Corruption of Innocence is my true story of having investigated over almost a four-year battle and a complete four-year battle. I mean, not just part-time, but it consumed me full-time, in investigating uh, a case of wrongful conviction, which I didn't know was a wrongful conviction at first, but just studying whether this person was innocent or guilty of a murder and rape that he claimed he was innocent of from day one of his arrest and throughout his appellate process. 
So my book takes people on what I call a rare expose of a journey of behind closed doors of what happens in these cases of wrongful convictions. Because I will say that through my investigation, which I did with um, Richard Reyna, who's an amazing investigator, he does some of the most profile, uh, high-profile cases in our country. He actually worked on the Timothy McVeigh case. Um, I brought in Sister Helen Prejean of Dead Men Walking. We all know her through that movie and, and her book. And my the results of my having been just fur- infuriated, you know, as you know, Carol brought the Pope and Mother Teresa and the Italian parliaments and the European parliaments. And we'll talk about how that happened. But I think most importantly is when we're naive and when we have no business or interest at all in the system, we believe, as maybe perhaps I did very naively, that the system works. And when I started investigating this case, you know, having believed that the system worked with a father who was an assistant attorney general and very conservative, he was president of the chess club, I figured that the system was just. And after investigating, uh, and I mean, you know, as you see, if, if you, you, you read my book, Carol, Leaving oh. No Stone Unturned. Oh, I mean, I just you know, was you relentless in it because I wanted to know the truth. And in, after investigating it and finding, finding out that prosecutors were lying in, in, you know, in, in, in reports to the, the news media, lying in their briefs, attorney generals were not stating the facts correctly. They were lying about the results of DNA testing. I was flabbergasted. And, and I think when you start learning that the system doesn't work the way you want and hope for it to work, then if it, you know, the more you uncover, the more you dig, and the more certain you are about what you're finding out, you know, you become engrossed in a mission for the truth. Whatever that truth might be, you don't ever stop at trying to find out what the truth is because we were, we're speaking about a human being, a person imprisoned in an 8 by 10 cell, you know, if even that, um, on death row with no voice. And I wanted to give this person a voice. It's so scary to think of anybody that's completely behind bars not having any adequate representation and having met many public, uh, publicly hired defenders when I was dealing with child abuse, they were completely inadequate to even help the child in an abusive situation. I mean, this goes on so many levels of our legal system, not just in the United States, but definitely here. And what does an innocent person do when they are in such an impossible circumstance? How do they reach out to people like you, Lori? I mean, truly... Well, you know, let me oh, let me. Joe was a very lucky you know, man to find you. Yeah, no, it's a it's a perfect. You know, this was just accidental, and and you know, by the grace of God, we you know we ended up you know uniting someone from death row and someone from the suburbs of of Princeton, New Jersey. Um, but now, and and that will lead into the segue of what I wanted to talk about. You know, after the book and what happened. You know, why did I write the book years later? I wrote the book years later, you know, for the very reason that you just brought up. How, you know, what's happening with this system? And and, and are, you know, wrongful convictions now, you know, dissipating? Uh, Barry Sheck and I, as we spoke many, many years ago, back in 1994, you know, he had stated he thought wrongful convictions would would diminish over a period of time. And he thought that way uh, because DNA, you know, was started becoming more, more widely used, and we figured DNA exonerations would, would help diminish some of these cases. In fact, instead of doing that, um, the amount of cases has increased. 
And um, uh, luckily, over the period of two decades plus, I have watched um, our country go from having one Innocence Project in New York uh, to the second one that I founded and directed, the Innocence Project at the Rutgers School of Law, to then um, a a slew of Innocence Projects then becoming born across America. So we then had Innocence Projects in every single state, and you couple that with the work that the Innocence Projects do. Um, They work to reform uh, the the legal system through the courts. They look to improve the law. They look to exonerate the innocent. And if you take that, coupled with the efforts to have DNA legislation, I mean, when I, you know, pursued this case, Joseph O'Dell was one was one of the and if the first person in our country to ask for DNA testing to prove his innocence in 1988. In 1988, we didn't even have DNA testing to prove guilt. And as as it started evolving and the use of DNA testing became more prominent, you know, we started looking to DNA testing to exonerate the the, the innocent. Um, but what I'd like to make clear um, to the to the listeners is that it's not all about DNA exonerations because DNA exonerations only make up 390 cases. Now, if you look at the the National wow. Registry, they report 390 cases. The Innocence Project um, is a little bit different. Um, they they report to date um, 329 exonerations. But either way. Um, if you take a look at the statistics, we have just about a quarter of exonerations are DNA-related. All of the rest of them, and it, which is a total of 1,587 exonerations through April 27th of this year, um, of all of those, we have 1,197 that are non-DNA-related, which means um, they're exonerated based on um, or, uh, the uh, perjured testimony. Uh, we find that you know witnesses have lied. We find that um, the the the, uh, the conviction rested upon what I refer to as junk science or unvalidated or improper forensic science. Or we have you know wrong cases of eyewitness you know identification or false confessions and admissions or you know jailhouse informants or inadequate defense or government misconduct, all of these things are prevalent as causes for wrongful convictions, Carol. But I have said then, and I will say today, that the only way that we are going to stop wrongful convictions is when we uh, address the root causes of what they are and why. And I feel that the root causes are is a lack of integrity in the system by those that actually you know are we rely upon, whether it be uh, prosecutors, police, um, judges, what, what have you. A lack of att- integrity, a lack of accountability, and truth. And if we have truth, accountability, and integrity, you would see the system change radically. But you know, as I've watched the system, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say how scary it is to think that the very people that we rely on that have power to make the circumstances correct are also the people we have to be suspicious of because they might have some individual preference that doesn't correspond with innocence. And what, what do you do in that situation when you're actually fighting the politics or some powerful person's personal position? 
Well, um, I'd say you, you you never give up. Um, and if you look at the people that that you know have been exonerated, you know some of them have have spent 30 years or more. We we recently had one spending 36 years um, and, and incarcerated for a crime that they didn't commit. Um, you you must never give up, and the innocent actually don't give up. Um, they, you know, they are the ones that persevere from day one and scream and shout out to anyone who will listen to them, uh, whether it be uh, educating yourself in, in prison like one person or many people have done, you know, getting a GED and uh, studying criminal law, you know, anything you can do to reach out, um, reaching out to the Innocence Projects. And there's other organizations besides Innocence Projects that help people and just, per, you know, persevering and never giving up and hopefully your case will land in front of a judge who will hear it you know from an impartial point of view and do the right thing um you know by by uh you know convincing you know um a convincing amount of evidence that's brought through after the fact you know which is mostly new evidence and so it's so very important for those out there that are innocent. And, you know, we, we, we speak about innocence when, it, when we, we mostly talk about murder convictions or rape convictions. But I was looking through the 1,587 of those exonerations, and there's some, you know, some that are fraud. You know, there's some that are child abuse. There's, you know, the, there's a, a slew of cases across the, the country that are not just, you know, these high-profile, egregious cases that come from, you know, some of the strongest crimes, you know, being murder and kidnapping, rape, and what have you. So how do you, how do you personally, Lori, handle an environment where you know that your optimism, your eagerness, your enthusiasm cannot uh, exist in the exclusion of looking at the culpability of people that you have to be aware of or you can't trust or people who will stab you in the back. I mean, how do you deal with the duplicity of both being eager and connected to people who are well-meaning, but also having to maintain a level of suspicion or doubt that someone's integrity is really present with you? Well, I think it's a matter of um, the the extent of research that you do. Now, I, I personally am of the opinion that unless someone you know is not displaying integrity or is lying or what have you you know i tend to question you know the the evidence before me but i don't necessarily jump to conclusions that there's something wrong until i have very very thoroughly investigated the case and and what i mean by that is not just you know a personal opinion that means absolutely nothing but through an investigation of witnesses or reading the records thoroughly or um getting affidavits from jurors or you know visiting crime scenes and talking to jailhouse snitches and you know who who reveal you know a, a false confession um it, it's a matter of just being able to know that in everything in life, whatever profession we're speaking about, there's, there, you're going to have good and bad. And, you know, there's some wonderful lawyers out there, there's some wonderful judges out there, and there's some great prosecutors. But that does not mean that we can defer to authority all the time. Because it's when we defer to authority that we lose a power, the power that we ought to have as a society in questioning people with power that run our lives. As I say, when, when we, you know, we're talking about life, liberty, or in the pursuit of happiness, 
I'll tell you one thing, Carol. I, I certainly wouldn't put my life and, and liberty in the hands of some people that I don't know. And that's certainly what we're doing when we, when when we're faced with a a crime, a charge that we did, you know, we we of uh, maybe a murder or a, a rape or or a fraud or something that we didn't commit. And so I think it's just a matter of really thoroughly, you know, becoming knowledgeable about the facts. And I think you know, in reading the Corruption of Innocence: A Journey for Justice, you will see that it, the the beginning of the book is peppered with facts. Because the book is designed, you know, both to to reach the attorneys, the judges, the politicians, but the general public. Because I want the general public to realize what happens behind closed doors. Because it comes to, it comes to a point where, as you recall in the book, Carol, you know, I worked so hard to release the truth in the United States, and when the prosecution threatened to to um, the newspaper that was about to print a five-page front cover story about this case of innocence, I thought to myself, okay, fine, you can stop me every way that you possibly can in the United States, you can lie to the judges, you can lie to the media, but you will not and you cannot stop me in the world. And that's why and when I reached out to the foreign governments, I reached out to the foreign press whether it be you know France and Germany and Italy and it was Italy that just saw this case and just it just lit on fire and I was invited to come to the uh, the Italian parliament by you know the, the 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 president who I met with his advisor in his office and met with Pope John Paul personally and you know in the end as you know received a, a phone call from Mother Teresa inviting me to stay with her you know why because when you believe in something with certainty and when you have passion about what you're doing, you may start alone, but in the end, you, you will have the world standing by your side. It is so important to never give up on something that you believe in, even, Carol, in the face of adversity. I mean, that's when, you know, the difference comes between those people that will falter and give up and those people that will look adversity in the face and take it as a challenge. Turn their, your adversity and your opposition and your criticism into something that could be an opportunity and, and change it around so that you can address the outcome that you would like to achieve. That's really, really up, important for come people up with to understand. For being able to face adversity and what type, describe to the listeners the types of adversity because it's amazing in the corruption of innocence the type of you received that were all meant to seriously discourage you from doing this. And where did you find the courage or the clarity to persevere? Um, well, you know, some of those, you know, for the, for the benefit of the audience, um, when I started uncovering some of the, the evidence of, of in, innocence, you know, I was working against a prosecutor who was a very heavy-handed prosecutor in, in Virginia Beach. And he was very tenacious and very strong. And quite frankly, through my investigation, I learned that v very many people were afraid of him. Um, he actually was criticized for hanging a noose in a courtroom and um, <laughs> doing so, you know, as a gesture to the defendant and to the people in the courtroom about what he intended to do to, you know, the person that was convict, you know, that he was trying to convict. Um, 
I was threatened by him in, in many different regards, whether it be, you know, his brother who was, I, I believe, a, a Secret Service agent, um, I, was, you know, started, I, I believe, investigating myself. I had, you know, phone taps on my on my line. I kept hearing, you know, little blinks on my phone quite, you know, quite often. Um, and I, I wasn't, wouldn't have been surprised if, if people were listening in on my line. I had the U.S. Postal Service, you know, tell me that they were investigating me for illegal activity, uh, be, you know, because of the amount of mail that I was sending out <laughs> when I was reaching out to all the lawyers and the scientists and everyone I could possibly think of who may help us. Um, he threatened to sue me um, because I helped Odell put a website up. Um, it's one of the first times uh, we had a, a website put up in the United States uh, voicing, um, a, giving a voice to an inmate who claimed that he was innocent. Um, it actually was picked up by 24 hours in, in um, cyberspace as a vehicle and, and a, a new way of giving people voices by using the Internet, if you can believe. <laughs> it was at a time oh, I didn't even know how to get an email address. Oh, my, oh my gosh, how do I get an email address? <laughs> I need to give this person a voice. And uh, Joe O'Dell's uh, story is, uh, you know, hung on the wall in the Smithsonian and ended up in the, the archives now. But, you know, moving along with the, the, the threats and the lawsuits and, you know, um, you know, just threatening to destroy my reputation, um, you know, saying things about me that were absolutely not true, trying to attack my credibility and my reputation, that's what they do when they want to stop you. That's what they, you know, you should expect any time you're going up against authority and any time you're challenging something that's really, you know, personal to either a prosecutor who was up for judgeship nomination and he had to withdraw from the race and a governor who was up for the Senate position, which he ultimately got. Um, I say this because people's personal goals sometimes stand in the way of justice because they don't want to admit that they were wrong. So, you know, I had to endure, um, you know, quite a bit of, of criticism. Uh, it, 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 you know, definitely was, was difficult for my daughter. Um, but I persevered, Carol, because I knew the, the facts of that case cold. And I knew that what I was saying was correct and that what they were saying was not correct. And no matter how much power they had, you know, over me, who had no power, I thought the truth has to come out. And I will not stop until I get this out. And if it meant I had to write a book later to help other people and to encourage people to persevere and to go after what they want and to expose what happens in these types of cases, then I was going to do that. Because for me, I was feeling like I was carrying this dirty little secret inside about what happened in this case. No one got to hear. No one got to hear, you know, about the threats. No one got to know, you know, about the strip search before I saw Joe O'Dell and, and you know, the, the death row area because they were trying to stop me even then. They were infuriated that the Italian Parliament intervened. They were infuriated that how dare the Pope, you know, tell us not to have this execution. How dare the Italian Parliament and the European Parliament ask for DNA testing. And they, they didn't like me. And so even then, 
you know, that even at the very end, you know, I sat there with the warden in the office and, and he actually asked me, you know, you think you have power? And, and much to my surprise, I was like, wow, you know, this is all about power to them. And yeah. I was flabbergasted because that's all it was, was a game of power to them. But for me, it, it, it's a game of truth and falsity, and truth mm-hmm. should prevail. And in my opinion, truth must prevail for the people in this country and abroad. And there's so many of them, Carol, so many oh, of them. Goodness. So the truth, especially for the innocent, when they have been uh, convicted of something they, they don't even know anything about. Um, so in, in thinking about these powerful people and how they want power, I, I kept reading this book saying, it would have been so easy to just say, oh, sure, let's do the DNA. Let's get it all clear. Let's, uh, let's, let's test the semen. Let's retest the different types of blood. Let's just do it now that we have. It would have been so easy. It would have stopped everything. And it, it, What would have it mattered to say, okay, we, we did this wrong. We made our best guess. We did it wrong. No big deal. So sorry, Joe. Let's help you reintegrate into the world. It would not have been that difficult. It would have been a lot shorter, a lot less money, a lot less battle, a lot less exposure. Why not just take the easy road? Well, I have to say back then um, in Virginia they had a 21-day rule where you couldn't bring evidence of innocence into the court after 21 days. So we had an attorney general, Eugene Murphy, argue to the judge that it didn't matter whether he was innocent, that even if the DNA testing showed that he was innocent, there was nothing we can do. That was his argument. And the judge actually said, well, you know, wait a minute now. You know, I don't think it's so ironclad that, you know, we would, you know, march someone to the electric chair if there's a question about his innocence. And so... I think the point then becomes, you know, and this is why there was an international debate, why wouldn't we do testing unless you were afraid of the results? And as right. we found out in the end, um, in, in um, the, the end we were petitioning to get the evidence, and they decided to destroy the only semen sample that they had um, because they stated that, oh, my goodness, if it came out that he was innocent, well, by golly, the defense would shout from the rooftops that he was innocent. Well, you bet we would have shouted from the rooftops, Carol. I mean, are you kidding? Of course we would. I mean, there would be no reason why we wouldn't. And so, you know, they were afraid of being wrong. And I think, you know, the, the, the fact that, that being right was so important to them um, was so uh, was critical and primary to their goal. They thought by lying about the evidence to people that didn't know about the evidence, you know, would make it go away. And, mm-hmm. you know, if I could just give you a, a little bit of example of what I call junk science, you know, in this particular case, it was a murder-rape conviction, and the majority of their case was held together by a, a jailhouse informant who said that, you know, Odell confessed, and he later admitted that he lied and he was afraid, um, and blood evidence. And blood evidence from Odell had said a fight that he was in across town um, where there was, you know, testimony that he was in a fight across town around the same time of the murder. And the prosecution laid out with, um, a theory and w- with a forensic scientist that was just six months out of, of their training. 
stating that the blood te- that they tested, and you have to remember this is 1985, they used only serology testing, which is enzyme-type testing and using ABO testing. Well, as you know, ABO is not very definitive, and serology testing could only say that you are not the perpetrator. It could not say that you are. But instead, they kept saying it's a match, it's consistent, it's consistent. And they tested three areas the, on his shirt, his pants, and his jacket. And all of these three areas um, included on the shirt, they tested three right next to each other. And those, the areas on the shirt were supposed to be the same blood, the same source as all the other blood on his clothing. But yet when the DNA came back initially that the, that the blood on his shirt was an exclusion and it, did, and it wasn't the victim's blood, they came back and said, oh, well, it's just one test, it doesn't really matter. Well, in fact, it absolutely did matter because they said all the blood was the same. And you can't have it both ways. If all the blood is the same and you find a, 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 a blood stain that does not match the victims, well, it would behoove you to do the rest of the testing to see whether there was another source of blood or whether it's not the victim's blood at all. Yes, and so, it's simple, you know, it's logical. The, the, it's very easy to do, and, you know, and, and people wanted that. People wanted to know the truth because, look, if he was guilty, okay, you know, I you know, wasn't about the debate of the death penalty. You know, it's wrong, it's right. It's, that's a question of morality. What I am about is, is convicting the, the wrongly uh, convicted people and having them spend 10, 20, 30, 40 years in prison, you know, for crimes that they didn't commit. And so we should have done DNA testing, but instead they decided to bury that, you know, with Odell and never find out because it would have hurt their reputations. It would have hurt them politically, and that was more important. Do you think that they were covering for someone else, some official or political individual that actually did do the rape and murder? I mean, that occurs to me. Why in the world are they so invested in getting rid of the evidence, of burning it, of hiding it, of, of shelving it in some sheriff's back bookcase? Or why are they so what, – what is it about this evidence that would have pointed somewhere else? I, I mean, I became very suspicious. Who are they protecting here? Well, you know, I'm not sure if it was so much that they were protecting someone else as they were protecting themselves. They had a vested interest in protecting themselves because it would have looked really bad if he was innocent, especially if you recall in the, in, in, during the book we had you know people from the attorney general's office say that Odell was making the people in the courtroom, the prosecutors, look silly because he was out litigating them. And no one wants to see that a, a pro se defendant is going to out litigate a seasoned, you know, prosecutor. And of course, a pro se defendant most likely will never prevail, you know, because obviously, if you're your own lawyer, you know, you're 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 doomed from you know from the beginning. And so, I, I think in this particular instance, I had always questioned, you know, her boyfriend. And I always questioned what, you know, why they didn't look at her, her boyfriend, who quite frankly was a, um, a correctional officer. Um, and he was, so he was a guard in a prison. 
and I didn't see any extensive um, research or, 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 or any type of investigation into his activities. And in fact, as I disclose in the book, uh, to the contrary, there was evidence that, that, he, that he may have shared a room with her at the very hotel that, that she disappeared from, you know, right before her death. Um, so there were very many suspicious uh, things that occurred around the same time. But when, when the prosecution and the police have their eye on someone and, and it's a high-profile case and they want to keep the public, you know, I guess, feeling secure, they tend to ignore things that don't support their, their position and go after, you know, evidence and, and situations that support it. Yeah, and Lori, I think, you, you know... Lori, you're just so you're so generous in saying yeah, you're so generous in saying that you know they just want to protect the public and not make them feel insecure about the system. But do you think it's possible that the ego of these individuals, the false ego, that they can't expose themselves of having made a mistake, which is not really a big deal. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Let's rectify it. Oh, no, that's exactly what I'm saying, is that they, yeah. they, you know, the egos come into play. And as you, you know, look at some of the um, just uh, recent statements that came into the media, you know, uh, with an apology, you know, literally coming from a prosecutor to an exoneree about, you know, look, I, I thought I was a big shot. And it was my ego standing in the way. You know, very few people, Carol, are going to come forward and admit something like that. Um, you know, very, very few people have that kind of uh, control, um, self-confidence. You know, a lot of people don't like admitting they made a mistake. And in fact, making mistakes is, is part of how we grow. Making mistakes is part of how we learn. But when those mistakes aren't acknowledged or when, when we as a public can't really look at uh, authoritative figures, whether it be police or scientists, to acknowledge that they made a mistake, then we have a very flawed system. And I, and I, and I turn our attention to, I'm sure everyone heard the most recent study about um, the FBI who has now you know, announced that they gave flawed testimony about hair evidence in 96% of the criminal trials that they reviewed so far in over 2,500 cases. And, you know, that's significant. Um, you know, they, were, they had concerns now about ballistic and bike mark evidence. You know, things that we said matched people back then. You know, did they really? You know, no, sometimes not. And, you know, if you take a look at some of those results, they found three people in 2012 that were exonerated and, and they were convicted based on the hair evidence, exonerated after uh, serving about 30 years each. Mm. 30 years mm. based upon testimony from an FBI agent that the hair matched, and in one instance it was a dog hair. And so for me, that's preposterous. You know, for me, you know, we have not come far enough. We've come, we actually have advanced quite a bit since 1985 and 1993 when I inserted myself into this, into this debate. But we have still not come far enough because until we really, really, you know, seek, you know, accountability and, and demand integrity from our officials, these things will still happen. And it's a problem, exactly. I think, you know, across the board. 
So uh, it, hopefully we will one day evolve to being more profoundly human and full of integrity and humaneness. But meanwhile, what has changed in the system that we still hope will improve so that we can protect ourselves from people's egos or cover-ups or pressures? Well, I think, that, you know, there's a, a few things that's happened. You know, A, uh, you know, immediately I would say social media has radically changed how, how things occur in our country because back then, you know, look, <laughs> they they you know, rallied behind me as being one of the first people putting something on Internet to expose someone's innocence. Well, now, you know, it's all over the place with social media. Yeah. It's a voice now for people that otherwise didn't have a voice. And I think the reforms that we now have and moving forward with DNA legislation, you know, allowing people to, you know, have access to DNA testing, and that doesn't, you know, by all means means that they all do or they all will, but they do have some legislation across the, the country that, that allows for people to go after DNA evidence that may exonerate them. And I think more importantly, because it's not all DNA-related exonerations, you know, other advances are occurring, like, you know, this recent um, acknowledgement that the the hair uh, sample t- testimony by FBI agents in these, you know, 2,500 cases, you know, are flawed. And so it mm-hmm. makes us look to, okay, what other things have happened? What other, you know, junk science is, is, is being relied upon by people across America? And I think people are now more open to it. I, I think it's becoming more of a debate about wrongful convictions than it is against the death penalty. And I will say, Carol, that my goal from day one when I was doing this case was to show people that by wrongly convicting people, we were then going to be wrongly executing people. Mm-hmm. And I think if we take a look at, you know, the Death Penalty Information Center has a, a, has a, a site that now talks about the exonerated but possibly innocent. And my case, the Joseph O'Dell case, is, is one of ten um, that showed strong evidence of innocence. But those are people that were identified, but not one of them have been posthumously um, exonerated. There was a petition wow. for Cameron Willingham that just went through a couple years back, and in April of 2014, they denied the petition for a posthumous pardon. Um, we do have posthumous pardons in our country, but as the Death Penalty Information Center cited, there is a total of seven cases, and believe it or not, they're very, very old cases, cases from 1936, 19, you know, 13, 1883, 1887, and 1919, where people were hung and then literally up to 72 years, 94 years, and in one instance, 100 years later, someone was exonerated um, after they were hung for a murder of a man who turned up alive. Oh, my goodness. And so, you know, um, we don't have too many posthumous um, pardons. Um, you Will know, Joe it's very, one? very difficult to achieve that. Will Joe receive one, do you believe? 
Um, that is, is something possible? that I'm actually looking into right now. Um, I, I, I can't discuss um, some current um, situations that I'm investigating, but there okay. are uh, avenues that I'm seeking that might lead to that type of a situation for Joseph Odell. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm actually currently working with a couple of people in that regard. And then I'm also currently working on the um, an international initiative, which would be an international commission against wrongful convictions, which would bring an international forum to this universal um, problem of wrongful convictions because it does happen in, in New Zealand, and I've seen cases in Japan, and it happens around the world, of course. Uh, but mm-hmm. right now there currently isn't anyone that's really pulling together all those cases, and I'm working that right now with um, a friend of mine um, in one of the parliaments in, in Italy on trying to pull together this initiative. It's something I've started and feel very strongly about. So we can give a voice to people around the world and start you know, bringing what we learned in the United States and some of our reforms and legislation you know, to other countries, and, like Italy with the whole debate with Amanda Knox. Um, you know, Italy now has one innocence project. And whether you believe someone's innocent or whether you believe they're guilty, I think we all can agree on one thing. Every single person is entitled to a fair trial and due process. And I don't mean mm-hmm. some evidence put forth. I mean all the evidence. We're entitled to hear all of it, not withholding exculpatory evidence, which suggests innocence, not withholding something that doesn't, you know, prove their case. Um, I, I think we're entitled to hear it all. I'm not framing the wordage, the, the, the verbiage that jurors are going to hear in a way that makes it difficult to discern what the truth is. I thought that was also criminal in, in terms of trying to, 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 that the prosecutor has a job to find guilt, yes, but doesn't have a job to create guilt um, by way yes. of saying things wrong or misrepresenting the evidence. It's just we have to. There are great lawyers out there, great prosecutors out there. We need to be safe as a society, but we can't let these people have power to uh, manipulate individuals. Jurors are uh, kind of at risk for being duped, I would say. Um, so what do we do is we're all kind of obliged to do jury duty. Mine's coming up. We're all kind of obliged as jurors to be clear that this is happening and not take the lawyers at face value. What do we do as jurors? Well, you know, I would say that that's an excellent question because, you know, one day, you know, we may all be pulled into the jury box and asked to, to perform that civic duty. And I'd say, you know, don't care you cannot care about what the media is saying. You're not to look at it. You're not to be involved in it. That, that's for a reason, because it's very, very important to, to remain, you know, objective and to first and foremost make the state prove their case. It's not up to the defendant to prove that he's innocent. It's up to the, the state to carry their burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt you know, that someone was guilty of a crime. And if you have a question, no matter what that question is lingering in the back of your head, I would suggest that that's not, that meets reasonable doubt. I mean, it, you, you can't have a question when you're sending someone to life imprisonment or to the electric chair. 
you know, you have to be absolutely sure that you're doing the right thing beyond a reasonable doubt. And it just means, you know, like in the Odell case, as you read, Carol, you know, these people had a party after he was convicted. I've never Mm -hmm. in my life heard of jurors having a party after someone's convicted. I say that's, that's a lack of objectivity. When you perform your civic duty, you do your duty and you go home and that's it. You don't get together and have a little party and, you know, do it, those things. That's, in my opinion, inappropriate activity. Mm. And, I, yeah, you know, it, it concerns me. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really, really, have really, so really important, your yes, to be objective <laughs> and to make the state mm-hmm. prove their case. Okay, so, Lori, I know that there's so much more, and everybody, I do just encourage you to to pick up the book, The Corruption of Innocence by Lori St. John. It is an amazing book. It's so hard to put down, thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) And you will go through so many emotions, up, down, in, out, hopeful, sad, despair, uh, shock. It's so many emotions, but beyond the emotions is that call, Lori, to be on top of your game and make something important happen. And what qualities about you do people who care about something need to embrace about themselves that you know got you through these four years because this was hell and back? How did you do it? What about you? Who are you? Or what did you grow inside of you to be able to endure this? Well, I will say uh, that you have to be one persistent person. <laughs> um, I was absolutely known for being doggedly per- persistent and, and very, very determined. And I think you become that way when you open your heart and you allow yourself to learn, you allow yourself to be educated, and you, you, you don't judge. And I say that from someone who was, you know, pretty protected in a suburban, you know, community, you know, opening up and reaching out into a potentially innocent person's case. I had knew nothing about crime. I, I was so far removed from that type of activity, but I allowed myself to be open. And I read and I read and I read. And the more you compile data, the more you re- do research, the more you ha- you're, you're fact-driven in your approach, the more powerful you become. Because confidence is, is based upon not just being arrogantly self-confident, but, but based upon the amount of knowledge and the, and the facts that you accumulate that support a position. And, I, and I'm careful not to say your position, because I don't believe it should be a position until you have enough facts and evidence to support something one way or another. And so I think it's a matter of being persistent, it's a matter of, of not, you know, not caring. You must not care about criticism and um, opposition and challenges because when you start losing your friends, when, you, when people start look at you, looking at you like, oh, my gosh, what a crazy person, you know you're not. You know mm-hmm. what you're doing is authentic. You know what you're doing is the right thing to do. And so did I care about the people in my daughter's school that criticized me? Did I care about my, my ex-husband's, you know, orthopedic surgeons that said, oh, my gosh, what, what's going on here? No, I didn't care about those things, Carol, because I knew what I was doing was right. 
And I knew that I had knowledge that needed to get that out there for the public. And in the end, I'll tell you, I would much rather have the support of Pope John Paul and Mother Teresa and millions <laughs> of people in Italy and, you know, and, and in the, the, the European Parliament. I would much rather have that than the, the skepticism of people in our country that didn't care and were quick to judge. So you didn't collapse under the pressure of a lot of close judgment from close people and a lot of international judgment that came your way. I wanted to address the issue of also being a woman in this situation, especially in the 90s. I mean, I know we had women's live in the 70s, but come on. (laughs) So in the 90s, actually, weren't you discredited because you were a woman? Because they wanted to see you as, oh, this this poor, sympathetic woman who's gotten pulled into this uh, death row guy's issue and drama oh my gosh and you carol you are just because you're a woman yeah. oh I, I thank you thank you so much for bringing that up and for women out there that are listening to me you pay attention Ooh. and listen really really hard because it's important to be an empowered woman and you bet absolutely that because I was a woman, they used that to any way they could. Oh, you know, she's in love with the death row inmate, and she doesn't have objectivity. And, I mean, you name it, it was out there. And it was absolutely a factor because had I been a man, I would have been approached and looked at very differently from the yeah. lawyers, from you know, the, the, the public out there. And I, I think as a woman, it, it, my, my challenges were minimum tenfold. It was much, much harder yeah. as a woman um, because you absolutely were going to be discredited any way they possibly could. I mean, I literally had someone drive, you know, six hours or I don't know how many hours to come interview me about my visit to Italy only to tell me after three hours, ask me a question, oh, by the way, were you in love with Joe Odell? And oh, I was flabbergasted about the lack of ethics, the, the trickery, and the things that happened out there with the media. So it's a matter of just putting it in perspective. If you're a strong woman and you're doing the right thing and you're authentic and you have family that loves you. You know, I had a daughter that stood by my side. I had an ex-husband, thank goodness, that, that thought what I was doing was noble. You know, I didn't care about everyone else. I, I cared about what was right. And I, I think that's really an important message to give people out there because it's so easy to falter. It's so easy to fail. It's so easy to give up. But when mm-hmm. you give up, you don't just give up on them. You give up on yourself. And, well, you know, the and whole I legal system is very, don't ever do that. The whole legal system is very masculinely driven. So for a woman to have made an entree into this and threatened to expose them, so to speak, is in and of itself is like a violation of the guy code, you know, the, uh, the, <laughs> yes, gentleman, the gentleman's club. So it, it, that you did that, I just want to applaud you that a woman can change the world. Absolutely. We're going to be looking at that in our political world very soon. Uh, as we vote for the next president, so this is a this is a key as women enter into a man's world and remain still womanly and yet also strong yeah. and yet not bend down to their way of of demeaning. Anything yeah, I would think add? that's probably you know that's one of the reasons why um, you know we didn't mention that that you know shortly after my book was published, 
I had a, a producer in touch with me, um, J. Miles Dale. Is, he's fabulous. He did The Vow uh, with Channing Tatum for all you women out there, and uh, he mm-hmm. did Endless Love and, and just a, a bunch of wonderful uh, movies, executive producer with 29 credits. You know, he was particularly interested in this case for a variety of reasons. And one, obviously, you know, the international uh, debate that it sparked, but the journey that I had. And for those people that have read the book and that said, oh, well, it's all, it's all about you, it's not all about me. It's all about my journey. It's all mm-hmm. about my Absolutely. journey with Joe O'Dell to expose the truth. That's really important. And I, and I think that journey that empowers women, if you look at Reese Witherspoon, she's doing about a, a lot of movies now and seeking roles of women that are empowered. That's what she's about right now. And, mm-hmm. and we're looking for female role models like that because it's important for the rest of us to learn that you can be empowered and you don't have to be subservient to anyone, whether that yep. be your partner, whether that be, you know, your, the people in your job, no matter who it is. If you're strong and powerful in yourself, you will present that way to the world. And I think it's really important for women to stand up for themselves and take their rightful positions in the world. Beautifully said. Okay, so I, in, in light of all that, I know you have this other book, How to Successfully Self-Publish, and I think that may be another show. But you, <laughs> but along with that book is the idea that you wanted to really reach out to people to become very empowered. Now you're talking about women being very empowered. Anything else you want to add to that that you know is so essential for people to embrace as they, they try to be as big and as important as they can be in the most ethical, humane fashion? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I published How to Successfully Self-Publish. A, um, if It's a nine-step guide to cashing in on a bestseller. And I did that, Carol, because I had looked into the industry and I had so many people, actually four houses that were looking at my manuscript, including, you know, Random House and uh, some of the other top ones. And they waited and waited and, you know, they said, okay, you're not supposed to, you know, contact us. Don't do that. You know, it's not within the rules. You have to wait months, you know, and weeks, whatever, before you hear from us. And I thought, what? You know, as a CPA and as a lawyer, I thought time is money. And I don't want someone that's going to sit there and, and tell me what is going on my front cover, what is going to go in the interior outlay of my book, you know, what the content of my book is going to be. Um, I absolutely couldn't see that happening. And so I took control over that, and I decided that I was going to do something that, again, you know, could be seen as, a, you know, unusual thing to do, but I, I took control and self-published it, and I brought in um, John Grisham's graphic designer to do my book cover. It took 36 book oh. covers before I was happy with the results. Um, oh. so you can do anything. I mean, you could do anything you want in the world, and that, that self-publishing book is to help other authors move into the world and say, I can do it too. I don't need to listen to a publisher that's going to tell me, oh, you know, it's, I don't know, you have to wait and it's not good enough or we don't know. Or Take command of your life. Take command and do something that you want to do because you only live once. And if you don't take the opportunity to do exactly what you want with your life, before you know it, your life is gone and there are no second chances. Bravo. Beautiful. <laughs> So do you do this with your daughter as well? And just as I segue to your daughter and your family, you 
wonderfully integrate the personal moments in your life, almost to illustrate how you're desperately trying to balance being a mom, being a, a professional, being a student, entering into a new profession, working on settling the divorce situation. I mean, there's so many things that are going on in your personal life, moving here, moving there. And you say, we moved here, and I'm thinking of all the effort involved in just a simple move, that you are uh, amazing in trying to express how you're trying to live a balanced life while you're taking on this task of saving this man from death row. And it was not easy to balance, in fact, sometimes impossible. So as a woman, how did your daughter fare knowing and seeing her mom try to be noble but completely torn apart with all the responsibilities of being a, a mother, a wife, a, a professional. Uh, well, you know, I have to say that I was very blessed with with a daughter that was extremely understanding. Had I not had that, it would have been much more difficult. But I think and I hope that I led by example that it was really important to, to go after what you want. And so when she saw me, you know, go to law school in the middle of this case and work the case, and she saw me leave law school after two weeks because he had got an execution date, and, oh, no, by golly, we couldn't give up now you know we had to move forward and push it you know I involved her and she received faxes and you know when I was invited to Italy I said honey do you want to come um, you're absolutely right I think it's very important to have a balance in your life and even though I'm a very very passionate person about what I do I'm also very passionate about my family and I love my 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 family and my daughter and now a grandchild actually uh, with oh, my whole my- heart <laughs> yeah, I have a little grandchild that's eight months old, little Brooke, and oh. it just, you know, really brings oh. together um, everything in your life. And I think it's 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 important to balance, and I think you can. You don't have to give up one to have the other. And I think, you know, at, absolutely at the end she was tired of it and she wanted me back. And, you know, but I think it was a great example for her. And I, I think, it, you know, I wouldn't have changed anything because it, it's it's who I am. And I think uh, she she knew the facts more than anyone. I mean, she literally would call the radio shows at, at age 11 and 12 and say, what, what you're talking about is wrong. That's not true. Did you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it was quite, wow. it was quite well, adorable. That's amazing. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, I just hear the pride in, uh, of you, uh, inside of you as you talk about your daughter. But uh, I'm so... I'm so pleased to have met you, to have had this opportunity to talk to you. And individuals, please pick up The Corruption of Innocence. This is a book that will make you amazed at who you can be if you put that much energy into helping someone else, as well as just amazed at the legal system and how we have to keep our eyes so carefully on it. It is um, not a a life that I would want anybody to have to struggle with, Lori, so I'm going to ask you, If you had not walked that path into volunteering that one day when you picked up that case, Joseph O'Dell's case, do you think you would have preferred never to have had your innocence lost, to have known that the government, the justice system would be that corrupt? Would you have preferred to be naive and go on with a, a much different path? You know, great, great question, and no. Um, it would have been the easy way out. It would have been much easier for my family and my daughter, and there were very severe consequences to me having uh, participated in this case. But um, I wouldn't change anything because, I, you know, we have to. The easy way is to close your eyes and not care. 
And, then, you know, I, I, like I said, when you open your heart and you open your mind and you open your, and your eyes to everything, then it all can come in and then you find your mission. And I don't know one person that doesn't want to find their mission or purpose in this life. And for me, it allowed me to have that opportunity. When I do work, and I, I referred to it as fun and you laughed, well, you know, <laughs> it's fun because you, you don't stop doing it because you love doing it. You lo- I love doing research. You know, I'm looking at a, a 990 for the Innocence Project and, and t- tearing apart the tax return. It's not fun for most people, but it's fun for me to see how organizations are, are developed and creating my international initiative. So mm-hmm. if you're doing something that's important to you, it won't be exhausting. You know, because I looked at my book after I read it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, where did I get the energy to do that? I'm, like, exhausted just reading it. And thank oh, I goodness exhausted. I kept the journal. <laughs> Uh, my journal is what guided me through that. I didn't make any of that up. That journal is exactly, uh, that book is exactly how I felt. I didn't hide anything. I didn't change anything. You know, it's all authentic. And I hope to take everybody on a ride of, of truth and share my pain, you know, along with any any glory that may have been, you know, peppered throughout there to share that with everyone. So I wouldn't change anything, Carol. I, I would have kept it the same remarkable you're and i know people say this to you remarkable individual i'm so glad that pope and mother Teresa and, and sister helen were all able to just be by your side and say you are remarkable and thank you for doing this is there a way that you'd like listeners to participate as well in terms of helping you with your pursuit of the innocent and the journey for justice is there a way you'd like to see people who care about this rally behind your efforts well, you know, I would love that the more people that know the truth behind a wrongful conviction, the more the people are empowered with knowledge. And I would love people to read my story, not just because it's my story, but because there are very, I don't even know another book out there like that. It, 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 right. It's a rare story of what happens behind closed doors. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. You know, talk about it and, and you know, go to the events that, that support wrongful convictions. Um, you know, do what you can, whether it's donating or speaking about it. Sharing doesn't cost a dime. You know, sharing a story that's really, you know, remarkable that might change your life or inspire you or is at least educational doesn't cost you anything. But just get involved and get engaged. And don't, you know, not care because it doesn't affect you. Because it's too late. Once it affects you, it's too late. It, it, then you're behind the eight ball. Right. You know, be, be be forthright in what you do. And I, I would say just get involved. And even if, you know, even if you're not interested in, in attending, you know, speaking engagements or things like that, when you read a book, you can share it for free. Um, and I just say get the message out there so people know. Um, because it's really important to be able to share, and I would love that. And I would love support with my international initiative. It will be the International um, Commission Against Wrongful Convictions, and um, it's in the primary stages, the initiative stages right now, but I'm certainly going to want support in that because it will be a nonprofit organization meant to help people and educate people, not just in our, our country but around the world which I think is a very, very important initiative, much like the International Commission Against the Death Penalty, which was only founded in 2010. Wow. Okay, Lori, well, we are behind you, and you keep us informed so that we can support you the rest of the way because you are on a mission, and we're so lucky you are. (laughs) 
Thank you. you. And listen, I would love for for my listeners to reach out and send me messages on Facebook, you know, Facebook, Lori St. John, author, you know, reach out to me on Google, on Twitter, uh, Lori St. John, author. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to keep in touch. I'd love to answer your questions. You know, be engaged. I welcome you to contact me and uh, keep the conversation and the movement moving forward. Okay, so LoriStJohn.com. Again, Lori St. John, author on Facebook. Any other ways they can contact you that you would love to hear from them? Uh, just Facebook, Google. My website is www.lauriestjohn.com, and it will allow someone an opportunity to follow not just my book work there, but what I'll be doing on an international level. So by my website, uh, lauriestjohn.com, to Twitter, lauriestjohnauthor, to my uh, Google page, the same. You know, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, if you put in Lori St. John author, I'm sure you'll find me. Uh, but be in touch. Reach out. Don't be a stranger. Ask me questions and, you know, join me on my movement and join me in your own inspiration to be all you can be. I, I, I just would love to see empowered women out there, and there's certainly there could be many more, and I'd love to see oh, that. Oh, wonderful. Engage in life, yes? Anything else you'd yes. like to say to our listeners as, you, as our final oh. farewell here? Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing this wonderful hour with me and um, look forward in the future to the film adaptation of the book, The Corruption of Innocence, A Journey for Justice. And uh, just, you know, keep in touch. And thank you for your interest and thank you for your involvement. Okay. You take care, listeners. Be invigorated and go forth. Be as strong as you can be. Yes, it's scary and it takes courage. So why not? It's one life. Live it to the fullest. Thanks, Lori, so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Carol. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. So sorry, you came a little early. (laughs) It's okay. It's no problem. You see that that has to go up. How are you doing? I do have a ladder. It's not a step ladder, though, unfortunately. Yeah, I have a ladder. 